I love you guys. Such a privilege to preach the gospel to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that King Jesus is coming back. We pray that you would ready us in our hearts. We pray that you would ready us in spirit. Lord, we pray that you would ready us in action. And this morning, we ask that you'd ready us in our understanding, prepare our minds to be transformed. Lord, prepare our hearts to be transformed and our actions to fall in line with the King. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, right now, um, we're in the midst of the season of Advent, which is, it emphasizes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And usually we associate the season with like mangers and uh, wreaths and shepherds. In other words, it's, we're usually thinking about the first Advent at Christmas. And of course, this is appropriate But Advent, the season of Advent in the church is also about the second Advent of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, when the one who came in meekness as a baby will return to this earth in thunderous glory. At the second coming, Christ will return to the earth, judge the world, consummate his kingdom, and set all things right. That's what Jesus is going to do when he returns. Did you know that this is going to happen? Did you know this is going to happen in history, in time, and space? King Jesus is coming back. Now, this notion may sound strange to our our modern skeptical ears. We're tempted to think that widespread supernatural events, if they happen, really, if they've ever really happened at all, are things of the distant past. They're not the kind of thing that like invade our modern world of fast food restaurants and Netflix and smartphones. So we're tempted to say, well, that kind of thing just doesn't happen anymore. That's like Old Testament stuff, or that's the stuff, stuff of myths. But for Christians, the affirmation that Jesus Christ will indeed return to the earth personally on the last day, this is not some kind of fringe belief that we can either like opt in or opt out on. Like, I'm not going to take that slice of the pie. No, it's not like that. Jesus' second coming is affirmed throughout Scripture. It's celebrated in the church's earliest liturgies. You know, every Sunday we say here, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. That's right. And it was also considered foundational, foundational enough to be included in the church's earliest creedal statements. So the Nicene Creed, which we recite every Sunday, actually makes two references to the second coming. The first one says that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And it ends with this phrase, we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. These are both second coming affirmations. So the second coming has been a central tenet of the faith from New Testament times up until today. And if you remove it, the story of our salvation begins to lose its coherency. You know, one of the most popular arguments against Christianity is something that the philosophers call the problem of evil. And I remember hearing about this a lot in college. The idea is that if a God exists who is totally good and totally powerful, then where the heck did evil come from? 
So based on this logic, some have assumed that either God is not totally good, or he's not totally powerful, or perhaps it just means that he doesn't exist at all. How does Christianity answer these questions? How does God respond? Interestingly, not with logic, but with actions. With mighty deeds of love and justice. God's answer is found in the mystery of his first and second advent. Consider the incarnation, his first advent. We don't totally know why there's suffering in the world. We know our sin has a lot to do with it. But we do know that we worship a God who loves us enough to come down from glory and to suffer in our place on the cross. And consider the second coming, the second advent. We don't totally know why God allows evil men to just continue to exist and run rampant. His mercy has a lot to do with it. But we do know that full justice is coming. A day of wrath and reckoning for some and a day of salvation for others. In this way, the first and second advent vindicate the Christian claim that God is indeed all good. He died for us. And that God is indeed all-powerful. He will have the last word in the story. He'll wrap it up in a way that's beautiful and makes everything make sense. So at the second coming, Jesus is going to complete the sequence of salvation that he began at his death, at his incarnation, death, and resurrection. In the words of John Stott, he's going to give all those remaining blessings that he won for us at his death and resurrection, but which we have not yet and indeed will not receive until he comes again. So what are some of these blessings that we've not yet received, but will at his second coming? Well, one of these was mentioned last week when our guest preacher Daniel preached. It's universal justice and peace. We look forward to the time of Christ as a, as a time when our swords will be pounded into plowshares, where the wolf will lie down to the, with the lamb. There'll be, there's all these images in the Old and New Testament of this universal justice and peace of shalom that spreads um, over all the earth. Another blessing we'll receive at that time is full sanctification. Does anybody here still struggle with sin sometimes? <laughs> yeah, I mean, full sanctification. We'll be, um, at that time, at the resurrection, we'll receive glorious bodies. We'll be made completely holy. Completely glorious. All the thoughts and inner attitudes of our hearts will be in line with God's nature and God's character. All the ways that we treat one another and our loved ones will be in line with His kingdom. Won't that be a beautiful place? Won't that be a beautiful time? Full sanctification. And most importantly at this time, though now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. We'll be in the presence of the Lamb of God. He'll be be the light of the world. We won't even need the sun. That's what the book of Revelation says. So we'll be with Him. Man, I hope your hearts yearn for that day to be in the Lord's presence in the new Eden walking with our God in the cool of the day okay so all these things I've been saying about the second coming are more like the view from 30,000 feet right these creedal statements are things that all informed Christians ought to agree upon but now I want to sort of zoom in uh, 
to the topic of, of the end times by looking at, at two specific passages. And zooming in on this topic can actually get a little bit hairy um, because there's many sincere Bible-believing Christians who disagree on the specific details concerning the end times. And really, most of these disagreements are what we would want to call secondary issues. They're not the kind of issues that should divide our fellowship. It's like, you disagree with me on this, I need to start a new denomination or something like that. <laughs> That's the kind of thing we do, isn't it? So I remember a few years ago I was talking with a college student, and uh, he had come out of a church that placed a, a big emphasis on end times predictions. And I, I met with him for coffee, and he spent uh, a long time explaining his views on precisely what's going to happen before Jesus returns um, while I just kind of listened to him quietly. And he said he believed in the rapture and told me what he thought was going to happen um, just before Jesus returns. Now, I knew this young man genuinely loved the Lord. We studied scripture together, um, and I just considered him a dear brother in the faith. But after he finished, I asked him if I could explain the sort of classic view the classic Christian view on this topic of the second coming. So, so what I'm going to share this morning, I didn't invent it. It's this sort of common view among Anglicans, Lutherans, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox. It's been the predominant view of Christendom throughout history. Uh, and he was very interested. So um, we turn to our gospel reading for today, to Luke 17. Will you please turn in your service sheet to Luke 17, 20 through 37. Some of us looked at this passage over two years ago before we launched. But now we've reached it again in our Gospel of Luke series and we're in the middle of Advent. I think it's worth looking at again, all right? So in verse 22, Jesus said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So this, this, this title, Son of Man, is Jesus' favorite title for himself, Right? And the reason why we wouldn't see him anymore is because after his resurrection, 40 days after his resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And so, we, you know, we don't see him anymore. He's with his Father in heaven. Picking up from verse 23. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words... The second coming will be a universal event, right? It's, it's, it's going to be obvious to all who are on the planet Earth that Jesus has just returned, all right? It's not going to be something that some people will notice, like secretly, and other people won't, right? Jesus warns us not to listen to false teachers who will try to make it into some kind of localized occurrence, who say, look there, look here. It's like, check it out, it's over here. Uh, instead, it's going to be, Jesus says, like when lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another. Isn't that awesome when you get to see that? You just like, you know, want to fall back on your, on your bottom after you see that. And it's like amazing. Right? Um, so um, verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So we talked about this. Before Jesus comes in glory, he comes in humility as the suffering servant to purchase us, to purchase our everlasting salvation. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, 
just as it was in the days of Lot. So these images of Noah and Lot, these are images of judgment upon the earth, right? These are classic images of uh, judgment upon the earth from the book of Genesis. And the idea is that uh, the people of the earth will be unsuspecting when Jesus returns. Humans will be carrying on with business as usual and will be caught off guard. We'll all be caught off guard when he returns. The Apostle Paul describes the same thing in our reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? Because there's nothing to write. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, he says. It's going to come. It's going to be unsuspecting. I'm not, I'm not going to write anything to you because I don't have anything to say to you. Right? In other words, drop all your futile attempts at trying to guess exactly and chart exactly when Jesus will return because he's going to come like a thief in the night. Jesus, do you realize in the Gospels, Jesus said that he didn't know when he was going to return? That only the Father knew when he was coming back? And yet, in defiance of Jesus' clear statement... We just continue, Christian history just continues to churn out people who are charting and predicting exactly when Jesus will return. Don't listen to them, Jesus says. I have, a, I have two pastoral concerns when it comes to this um, overemphasis on end time speculation. And the first is that I think what can happen is it can almost be like a, like a second coming of, of like some kind of Gnosticism. As if like, somebody has this, this kind of secret spiritual insight or knowledge, they're sort of able to read like the tea leaves of like the world history scene. And you better tune in next week or you might miss the next sign, right? And you might end up getting left behind, right? So it, it, it kind of creates this system of dependence on this sort of like, you know, spiritual elite person who seems to have like vision or some kind of information that we don't have. And we need to kind of stay tuned in with their sort of like, they got the Gnostic antenna up. They, they know, they know what's, what's going on. And we need them. But, um, but maybe a bigger concern for me is um, I think that oftentimes uh, an overemphasis on end time speculation can create another gospel. So it can really generate a lot of fear. And what happens is we feel like, if I'm not like smart enough in my biblical interpretation or if I'm not like sort of spiritually savvy and clever enough to know exactly when Jesus is going to come, I might receive the mark of the beast on accident or I might not know that this person is the Antichrist and I might end up going to hell forever. Right? It kind of creates this situation where it's like if I don't, if I don't kind of get all my, if I, if I don't kind of have spiritual sight for this, then, then I'm not going to be saved. Instead of saying... Actually, if you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for you, that he purchased your eternal salvation, and if you focus your attention on following the king, you will never be left behind. Right? That's the gospel. Notice that Paul's idea of being prepared for Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 5 doesn't have anything to do with guessing the identity of the Antichrist. It has to do with walking out our salvation as children of the light, putting on faith, hope, and love. In other words, just living out our Christian identities. New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson writes, Paul wants the Thessalonians to live appropriately in this in-between time. Their lives should be filled with alertness and watchfulness. 
They're not to be on the lookout for an external event like trying to spy a creeping thief in the night. Instead, Johnson says that Paul is encouraging the church to recommit themselves to Christian moral standards. This is actually part of what's going on in the argument from Thessalonians. He, he warns them about avoiding lady, laziness and sexual immorality. Um, and uh, he says, if we really want to pre be prepared for the return of the king, we should be living our lives in accordance with the kingdom now. So it's just like what I was sharing uh, in the children's sermon, right? Uh, it's like, you know, the, the, the king goes away, and, uh, and there's, all other, there's all kinds of other ways to be living right now, aren't there? But we want to say, you know, long live King Jesus in the way that we're living our lives. We want to band together and, and you know, live, live this kingdom movement. And sometimes, you know, the world is going to say, hooray, we really like you guys right now. And sometimes the world's going to say, we really hate this, and this is very contrary to us, and maybe we'll even throw you in prison. But are we living for, the, for, the, for this kingdom or are we living for Christ's eternal kingdom? Looking back to Luke 17, verses 34 and 35, we get to some of the most famous images from this passage. It says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. So these are very famous verses. Songs and best-selling novels have been written about them. It talks about marriages being divided. One knows Jesus and one doesn't. It talks about co-workers being divided, right? One will be taken, the other left. And what's the idea? Where will these people be taken? Well, this is what I asked this college student. And, uh, and he answered, well, they'll be raptured up to be with Jesus. And the others will be left behind. And, um, you know, uh, the first time that I ever read the New Testament, that's exactly what I thought that the Bible was saying. And, and I don't even know why I thought that, because it wasn't like I grew up going to Sunday school or whatever, but that interpretation, I think, is just so ingrained in our culture. It's kind of just a part of the air that we breathe. And, uh, and somehow I'd, I'd, I'd imbibed it without, without really realizing. But this just shows that we don't read the entire passage, doesn't it? Because the disciples actually ask Jesus in verse 37, and he gives an unexpected answer. They say to him, where, Lord? In other words, where will they be taken? Where will the person in the bed be taken? Where will the woman who's grinding that's taken away, where will they be taken? Raptured into the clouds with you in heaven? And that's not what Jesus says. He says to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Right? He says they're going to be taken to the place of judgment. They're going to be taken to the place of the dead. Those who are taken away, those who are swept away in the Noah story, that's not what you want. You want, you want to be left behind, right? <laughs> um, so responding to the common confusion about this passage, N.T. Wright says, There has been a growth in industry in writing books based on passages like this. One will be taken and the other left. Some have assumed that being taken... In this sense means being snatched up to heaven to be with God, leaving the others behind to survive in a frightening world from which all true believers have been removed. That's not what the passage means, though. It's actually the other way around. The people who are taken are the ones who are in danger. They are being taken away by hostile forces, taken away to their doom. So now, at this point in my conversation with this college student, um, 
I let him know that actually until, until very recent history, relatively recent history, no one in the church taught or believed this idea of the rapture. This view actually didn't come about until the 19th century uh, with a man named John Nelson Darby. And we discussed how if Darby's system is correct, then all the church fathers and the Protestant reformers were drastically wrong about end times. And while that's certainly not impossible, um, the church hasn't always interpreted the scripture accurately. Um, it should at least give us pause when like a new idea comes from the outside. It's like, we haven't seen this one before. What are you saying happens? Um, so to, um, to make the point further, the, the next thing I did, I, I asked the student to show me the place in the book of Revelation where it mentions the rapture. And this guy loved the book of Revelation. He said, well, it doesn't mention the rapture in the book of Revelation. I said, I agree. <laughs> so what does Revelation teach? I, I want to uh, submit to you this morning that it actually teaches the exact opposite. It doesn't take, teach that the believers are going to be sucked up into heaven. I mean, that might be where our souls and spirits reside as we're waiting for Jesus to return. There are saints in heaven saying, how long? How long is it going to be? When are you going to come back? and set things right. They're praying for us. But at the same time, the image in Revelation 21 is of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bridegroom to earth. And so heaven and earth are becoming one. And creation is being made new. There's a new heavens and a new earth. So heaven and earth are coming together and it's like all of creation is being resurrected. And rather than this disembodied sort of like Looney Tunes version of heaven... Where like, we look like ourselves, but we're just spirits, and we have harps, and we have halos, and we float up to the clouds. That is not a very appealing like, image of heaven. Is it? <laughs> uh, not to me, at least. I don't, I don't fancy the idea of sitting on a, clou uh, a cloud for thousands of years playing a harp. <laughs> um, the, the images for the new creation in the Gospels, in the book of Revelation, and Paul, they're all um, they're physical. They're tangible. It's like there's a river coming out of the middle of the city and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And Jesus talks about how there's going to be work that goes on. And those who are faithful in this life will, will be given more work in the next life. And it'll be God-glorifying labor. And, you know, the nations are going to, there's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to come and bring their worship to the Lord. It's this beautiful, beautiful image. Again, uh, N.T. Wright says the key is to realize what resurrection itself means. It doesn't mean disembodied life in some mid-air heaven. But the re-embodiment of God's people to live with God in the new redeemed world that he will make. Or in one of his favorite jokes, N.T. Wright says, heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> So, in other words, you know, we, you know, if you die and you know Jesus, you, you, you might go to heaven and be with him for a while, but that's the temporary state. The, the, the state that's going to be the lasting state is when we're reconstituted, we're given new and glorious bodies, like the body of our Lord Jesus. And this is important. This stuff is important because um, we as Christians can sometimes fall into a false dualism that says that spiritual things are good and physical things are bad. But that, that's Plato. That's not, that's not Christianity, right? Christian, Judeo-Christianity affirms that God, our creator, created the world and said, it is good, right? So resurrection theology assumes the world has a good creator and that matter matters, 
right? Whereas this, this kind of uh, platonic dualism can lead to the false idea that like things like prayer, like spiritual things like prayer are more important than like showing up for work on time, right? Because prayer is like spiritual, but like showing up for work on time like and like having integrity in the workplace, like that's just, that's just kind of what you do with your time, you know? Um, or, or some have even claimed that all sexual intimacy, even in the context of marriage, is like somehow dirty, even though God created it in the beginning, right? Or, or, or this can even have ecological implications. So we, we, can, we can kind of be like, hey, we'll just trash the world now because God's going to trash it later, right? <laughs> <laughs> but God's not going to trash the world. He's going to resurrect it. And just like he cares about the way that we treat our bodies now, even though they're pre-resurrection bodies, he cares about the way that we steward the earth now. So in the time being, actually, we should be living in continuity with the new creation. That's what we pray every Sunday. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? As C.S. Lewis reminds us, a new nature is being not merely made, but made out of an old one. And he goes on to write, The old field of space, time, matter, and the senses is to be weeded, dug, and sown for a new crop. We may be tired of that old field. God is not. God rescues his story. He rescues his story by rescuing us. He rescues his story by rescuing all of creation, which he started. Okay, turn now, if you would, to the reading from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And uh, here we find what may be the only possible reference to the idea of a rapture. Um, so we might want to ask, um, is, is that what this passage is talking about? Is Paul introducing a strange new idea that doesn't occur in any of his other letters or any of the rest of the New Testament? Or is something else going on? Um, so he starts out, well, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. This is, a, this is a phrase that Paul uses more than once in his letters. So right away we should note that Paul is not an anti-intellectual. Right? He doesn't want Christians to be ignorant. And he never preyed upon people's ignorance. He cared about what we call here the discipleship of the mind. Because he knew, as Jesus taught, that the truth will set us free. Right? Have you ever been in a church or a part of like a religious group where it seemed like people were intentionally kept in ignorance? I have. That's, that's what much of the non-believing world thinks about organized religion. It's the opiate of the masses that there's just a bunch of non-thinking people who don't really look at life in a critical way. But this would not have pleased the Apostle Paul, and that's not biblical Christianity. If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you this morning to be a reader. Be a thinker. You know, know your faith. Don't be afraid to ask tough, tough questions. What do we have to be afraid of? Bring it all into the light. Continuing on that sentence, Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is, those who died. That's a euphemism for those who died. They're stressed out. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And first, just as an aside, I want to say that Paul is not forbidding Christians um, to grieve the death of their loved ones, right? It's always sad when we lose someone we love, 
and even Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Excuse me, what Paul is saying is that we should not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, there's a different kind of grieving when we know that the person who died knew Jesus. Right? Have you ever been at a funeral like that, where it's like you're, you're, you're at the funeral and you're like, I know this person knew the Lord. And you might be sad, you might be like, man, I really, I'm going to miss them. And you might cry, but you're, there's also this sense of celebration. Because we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with, to, with the Lord for them. and That we're going to get to see them again. That they're in glory, that they've finished the race. So if this is true, why were the Thessalonians so distraught over the death of their loved ones? What seems to be what's going on in this context is that they have um, somewhat of like an incomplete theology. And it's not surprising because um, the Greeks, um, this idea of resurrection was sort of foreign to them. So they might have accepted the idea that Jesus rose from the dead, but they had a hard time understanding this idea of the general resurrection and final judgment. That was just sort of foreign from their worldview. And, uh, and so they seem to be saying, um, okay, Paul, you said that we were going to have eternal life and that Jesus was going to come back. But since you left, some of our people have died. How are they going to have eternal life now? You know, because Jesus hasn't come back yet. What are we going to do? You know, How, why is it that we get eternal life and, and those who died, you know, are just dead? And, uh, and so Paul seems to be saying to them, no, that's not the way. I, I don't want you to worry about those who have died. Um, God has a plan for them, right? So Paul comforts them in verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so in the same way Jesus is the prototype here, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. He says, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So he says, Don't be afraid of death. It didn't have the final word over Jesus. It won't have the final word over you. As Christians, our hope is not in sort of extending our present life on and on and on indefinitely. Our hope is a resurrection hope. To pass, to pass through death and out the other side. That's going to be the reality for most of us. Except for those of us who are still alive when Jesus returns. As it says in 1 Corinthians. We won't all die but we will all be changed. Okay. So verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. That we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord. Will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who are still living when Jesus returns will have no advantage over those who've died. This would have reassured those who were concerned, if they were concerned about their, their dead loved ones, right? And we know from Paul's letters and other literature that in general the Greeks had this, this hard time understanding this idea of resurrection. So as we said, it's G, he, wants, he wants to link this idea to the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. So now we come to verses 16 and 17, which is Paul, where Paul specifically describes the second coming. He writes, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. So let's break these verses down a little bit. Um, first, notice the affirmation in verse 16 that it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So this won't be just like, like a sort of spiritual experience, like my heart is strangely warmed for Jesus and so I know he's returned. No, like it's going to be a personal historical event 
that happens in time space. Second, this word caught up that Paul uses in verse 17, being caught up together in the clouds, this is actually where we get the word rapture. Sort of a later translation of the Bible in Latin um, uses that word to describe what's going on here. So here it seems like we've finally gotten to this first clear reference for the rapture. But let's look at it a little bit more closely. Bible scholars point out that the words coming, used in verse 15, and to meet in verse 17, stick with me here, um, were terms that were used at the time to refer to a city that was receiving a royal visit from the emperor or some imperial figure. So these are, these are two specific terms that were used. Like when you have somebody coming into town, um, you go out of the town and you meet them, and then you usher them back into the town. So think of Jesus' triumphal entry, right? When, when those who, who believed Jesus were the Messiah, some were with him, some from the city who were believing that, saw that he was coming to Jerusalem, they met him outside of the city gates, and they ushered him into the city, right? They were laying the palm branches at his feet. They were saying, Hosanna, you know, Hosanna to the King of David. They brought him back into the city. It's a very similar thing is going on in, our, in, our, in the famous hymn, Oh, When the Saints Go Marching In. But when the saints go marching in, yes, I want to be in that number. The idea is that the saints, that, that those who are receiving the king, go outside the city and they come with him. They march in with him. And so we get this idea that we get in the rest of the New Testament, which is that the saints in some ways participate in the victory of the second coming Messiah, participate in the judgment in that event. All right. So we've arrived back where we started at the second coming of Jesus the final judgment. And we've walked through some of the biblical details. But what if we don't get some of these biblical details right? What if we're not clever enough and we don't read all the signs correctly? Should we be afraid? The answer is, not if you know Jesus. Paul ends this section on an encouraging note for the Thessalonian church, and it can apply equally to us. Look with me at verses 9 and 10. This is the gospel truth. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So God has not destined us for wrath. And trust me, we want the wrath of God. God's wrath is his outrage over all sin, over all oppression, over all the evil upon the earth. But here's the tension it creates in us because we're all sinners and we don't want that wrath to fall on us, right? We want mercy to fall on us. So Paul assures the Thessalonians, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. It's just, it's just like the hymn in Christ Alone says, where it says, Till on the cross when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied, right? The wrath of God was satisfied. I remember listening to two seminarians argue about this. One guy said, I wish that line said, the love of God was magnified. Uh, and I'm like, well, that's true too. But then the other seminarian says, but how was the love of God magnified? And then all of us at the table said, because the wrath of God was satisfied. <laughs> right? So because God... In his great mercy, out of his great love, satisfied his own just nature by taking our judgment upon himself. 
He's been found guilty on our behalf, and our sin has been put to death. And as we await the second advent, we're again called to band together, to live in accordance with his kingdom now, so that the second coming will have nothing to fear. We'll join in and shout, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Long live King Jesus. Amen. Amen.